0: All right, Parisi Nation, Steve Leo here. I'm your host for the Parisi Podcast. Uh, I'm very excited to have Michelle Decourt on our podcast today. He's out there in beautiful San Diego, a lot nicer than New Jersey, uh, yeah. getting ready for the holidays. Uh, you know, uh, if you don't know, if you haven't seen him, he's been on a lot of our content over the last uh, – really over the last year, I would say. Uh, I'm going to let him definitely expand upon it, but he's definitely one of the most well-known – people in our industry, especially when it comes to understanding the fascial side of fitness and and sports performance, and he's become a real big part of what we're doing on a daily basis. So, Michelle, I'm going to turn it over to you. I'm going to let you give uh, your bio. I have some notes as well, but I'm sure you're going to give a much better bio on yourself. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for popping on today.
1: Yeah, Steve, listen, uh, you know, happy holidays, Merry Christmas to you, and I appreciate you, um, you know, taking the time and having this chat, uh, you know, about things that hopefully are relevant to a lot of us. Uh, yeah, my my background it was never an athlete. Uh, I was more on the academic side, so I did my graduate and undergraduate work in the University of Alberta in Canada. Uh, I moved to the U.S. in in the later part of 2007. I did a little bit of teaching work at the University of San Francisco as an adjunct faculty member there, uh, and then you know kept coming down south to San Diego here, where I've I've been here pretty much uh, most of the time that that I've moved to uh, to the U.S. and so you know, we've got two companies. The, the first one is um, IOM, which is an applied health and human performance company. So we look at solutions and strategies and logic as it relates to health as well as human performance. And so that really begins to shape our perspective on things. It's not just the performance end, but, you know, how does it ladder up to actually health outcomes as well? Uh, and then, you know, those solutions kind of flow out of the, the back end of that and then the other one is the product Viper, and then now Viper Pro, which is the the new iteration of our design. And uh, that really is a, a loaded, basically an omni. I'm, I'm actually stealing Bill's uh, words now. It's omnidirectional submaximal loading. And you know, it's it's been awesome to see what you guys have done collectively uh, with that that narrative and uh, you know all the information that is that is coming out. And you know, tip of the cap to you guys because. Uh, phenomenal work and phenomenal at making accessible for, to to all of us, and so um, you know our product is one of 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 many that adds uh, load to movement, and so the ad- idea there is you know it's kind of training like a farm kit again, and so you know that's a little bit about my background and probably some of which shapes you know our discussion here and some of our perspectives you know as we look at business and look at solutions when we uh, when we get out there.
0: That's that's great. I mean, your background's amazing. Uh, Obviously, all the research that you've done as well, and I know we'll kind of touch upon it. But you know, since you brought up the Viper, you know, I I definitely wanted to dive a little deeper into that. I mean, listen, let's just talk from a a protocol standpoint as far as how many people are using different modalities now in our industry. There's so many different things out there with kettlebells and barbells and dumbbells, and now you came up with the Viper, which is a really, really cool and intriguing product. I I got to use it for the first time a couple years ago at our summit down in. Nashville and it was definitely not what I thought it was which uh was uh great you know because I, I really when you see something online you don't really know what it is I'm like is that just a tube like what is that yeah. thing and yeah. then I use I was like holy moly this is much different than I thought so why don't you kind of take us through well, how did you come up with that? Basically, you know, uh, again, there's so many different training modalities out there, but how did you come up with this particular product, knowing we're going to talk a little more in depth of what it does, but how did you come up with it? What, what you know, what made you think about it?
1: Right. Yeah. it's a good question. Uh, I'm, I'm smiling because, you know, uh, Bill tells the story. He tells my story better than I tell my story now. Got it. Yeah. Uh, which is awesome. Right. He's great at but- that. Yeah, but he's, it's because I heard him, I think he was on the uh, Cressy's podcast and he was talking about the, the story and, and uh, I, I, I was listening to that clip and, and I leaned back and I chuckled and I thought he's telling it better than I am. But the story is, is that, you know, some time ago, uh, a, a gentleman named Simon Bennett and myself, Simon Bennett uh, is in the performance realm. He was the SNC and and the director of high performance for one of the NHL hockey teams, the Edmonton Oilers. And um, he's still affiliated with them in that capacity, but he's basically broadened even beyond that right now. Uh, but he and I were looking at training uh, hockey players either that were at the professional level or getting to the professional level. And as we were doing, it's usually about 16 weeks of an off-season program, right? So 16 weeks, you have, you've got to get them anatomical, anatomically uh, adaptable, right? So you go through that anatomical adaptation phase, you go strength, power, and then SAQ, and then... They're back into the season or they're back into the next level of of hockey. And so, you know, in that 16-week off-season protocol, we would look at trying to create, you know, a more robust anatomy and then trying to amplify this idea of force production strength and then the expression of force production power uh, and then different ways to express that power through SAQ. And so what was interesting back in the day is that We would do all that, follow that periodization model, and when we when we when our athletes got back to sport with the coaches and and the scouts, uh, we would always ask, you know, how are players doing? Yeah, they're doing good. What can they improve on? And you know, almost universally, Steve, the the answer was strength on the puck. Now, for for those that are not in the northern climates and don't understand the, the game of hockey quite that well, strength on the puck means, you know, obviously, this collision and battling situations in hockey. And when you have the puck and and I'm the opposing player, I've got to either try to nudge you off the puck or try to battle for position of the puck. And that, that jostling, that battling scenario was never to the advantage of those that we trained. And so strength in the puck became this kind of moniker that we had to address in order for us to be you know, more successful. So we w- would rejig our strength timing, right? Maybe allow for a little bit more than a four week to five week to six week protocol on strength development. And so as we expanded the strength, the hope was that they would be able to produce more force. And so the very next year, same answer, right? They'd strengthen the puck. And so it took us a while, but we asked a critical question which was, well, who's beating us to the puck? Farm kids. Right, And so the idea and the inception of Viper and then the new design of Viper Pro is really what are they doing on the farm, right? And that's what Bill always said is the omnidirectional submaximal loading. And when we look at the characteristics of adaptation through our development over thousands of years, that's what it did. Like skin, joint strength, muscle, um, even nervous system engrams, right? So uh, efferent motor outcomes, which is coordination. Uh, fascial remodeling and development are all to a certain degree uh, on the backs of this idea of can I actually introduce load in a variety of different ways. Because as soon as I go through repetitive loads, if the volume is is high enough, it's repetitive stress. And repetitive stress increases the risk of repetitive injury uh, or repetitive stress injury. And so, you know, there is this kind of dance that we need to make between enough variability to be bulletproof uh, and enough specificity to have a transferability into whatever environment or in, into skill or whatever we want to have as an outcome. So that dance needs to occur. And what we might say is, you know, you can grab, you can grab a product that is a mass driven product. But often what I'll say is, you know, if, if this seems a little bit too like Michelle's got his own ulterior motive, okay. grab a tree branch, right? Load it and move around with it. And the body will use that mass as an input signal. And what it does is it starts to create adaptations <clears throat> that we hope to gain uh, by virtue of not just the product, but the philosophy behind the product, which is can you take a bale of hay into the gym without all the mess, right? Without straw everywhere. And if that's the way that we can do it, can that style of loading complement what we've done in the linear patterns extremely well? Because we're still huge fans of linear patterns, right? Mm-hmm. Where you know load is high and degrees of freedom are lower. We need that, <clears throat> but we also need this—you know—the introduction of other aspects of load as well. And so that was really the thought process behind—you know—can we take the wisdoms that are on the farm? Can we take—you uh, know—what farm kids have done? Not even just this generation farm kids, because they sit a lot in tractors. But let's say two generations ago, what they did on the farm in rural environments to make it through the day, and take those wisdoms and apply it to current training philosophies. And, uh, and so that's kind of, you know, where we've been over the last 10 years. That's great. I mean,
0: I think a mm-hmm. lot of people, if you take our industry strength and conditioning coaches, they're used to barbells and weights. I mean, that that's yeah. where we are because you know what it is. It's measurable, right? If you bench 100 pounds this week and 120 pounds next week, well, you improved. Uh, but I think it's something that we've always struggled with. I know Bill and myself and a lot of other coaches in our network that we always knew that wasn't always the final stage for them. Like right? that, That's a nice step for a lot of kids. You see a weight go up, okay, there's improvement there. Yep. But our goal is to take the kid from the weight room and bring them onto a track, a court, a field, whatever it might be, yep. and they now have to perform. And now there are other options. Obviously, yours is a great option now to incorporate. And I don't wanna pigeonhole it with speed or strength training. I, I like how you talk about it. it's just a loaded movement. And whatever movement pattern, that you want to use that day for a training stimulus, it can be used with, it can be used in running, it can be used in cutting, it can be used as a strength training pattern. So was that really, you know, you talked about um, bringing the hay, and I think that's a great way of thinking of it, bringing the hay in the building, is that how you looked at it, that we're just going to try to load movement, not only strength movements, but also true movement, change of direction, linear speed, things like that?
1: I wish I could say that we thought of all that right from the beginning, (laughs) but the the honest answer is we, we didn't, what we looked at was, you know, it'd be like you and I, if we're looking at, you know, a farm kid wrestling a gym kid and you and I were betting people, most likely our money would be on the farmer. And so that's where we started. And so we said, okay, can we, to your earlier point, can we load movement? And so we would just go in and say, well, how can we, if we made something simple, like there's an inverse relationship between complexity of design and utility. Right. So the more complex the design of anything, the more it has a singular utility or more of a specific utility versus you said, you know, barbell, dumbbell, kettlebell, super simple designs. We can do a ton of stuff with that, right, which is awesome. And so both are correct. Like, you know, the more simple the design, the more utility or the more I can use of it. And so ours is in the, in the similar vein of a kettlebell, a barbell, dumbbell, meaning you know, see, so you, when you looked at it for the first time, you said, is it just a tube? And when you said that comment, I'm like, yeah, it's just a tube. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's a mass, right? And what does this mass do? There's no moving pieces to it, right? It's not ballast in the, on the inside with anything, right? You, you could, right? You could put, a, you could put a ballast in it, but it's just a mass. And, and so when we accelerate that mass, when you decelerate that mass, when you odd position load that mass, uh, when you lift it from a dead start, right, which is overcoming it's resting inertia, When you interact with all that all of a sudden we look at the six definitions of strength within the snc community and we can start to address some of them maybe not max strength unless you had a really heavy one um but that's really handled well by barbell dumbbell and to a certain degree kettlebell right so we got that covered max strength load the bar up linear like isolate your degrees of freedom respect the sagittal plane and go right and then this other one is the other end of the spectrum which we also need which is Submaximal loads, increased degrees of freedom because that's an inverse relationship. And now we can start to be that odd, odd position farmer uh, knowing that what's gonna accept load is skin and fascia and nervous system and muscle and joint mechanics are all gonna be more tolerant of these life things, life experiences, life movements that we do uh, at various speeds, if we call it sport and life and, you know, if we boil it down to its, its elements, I don't know one s and coach or exercise physiologist w- worth their grain of salt that would say, you know, what we shouldn't do is expose, right? The biggest way to create an unbreakable body is exposure. Mm-hmm. So if we, want, if we want to create a good unbreakable body, exposure to a variety of different stresses is the name of the game. Particularly if we play the court the sports that are on the courts and the fields that you're talking about. Because it isn't just a linear thing. If I'm a running back, to make it through the first layer of defense is not about all out speed yet. That's a second layer, right? Now it's just, you know, I've I've beat the linebackers. Now I just, it's an all-out foot race to the end zone. So I get it. Linear speed, awesome. But to get to that second level of defense, it's can I stop and change direction quicker than, than that linebacker? And in a lot of cases if i can that gives me an advantage right if i do a jet sweep and i'm just trying to outpace them on the outside i get it but in a lot of cases can i actually take my mass and can i actually decelerate and change directions quicker because if i can that is speed it's just slowing down deceleration and if i can change directions quicker huge advantage if i'm a squash player huge advantage if i'm a father huge advantage if i'm 87 and i want to prevent falls Deceleration and control, huge advantage, right? So your, I, you know, the way you said it was perfect. You know, it's loaded movement training, right? So if I can load movement in a way that increases my capacity because of exposure, then I'm starting to think about this idea of can I be unbreakable? And unbreakable seems to be a very, um, it seems to be very aspirational at any phase of our health span or our lifespan. If I'm 87 and I'm unbreakable, that means I can live independently. And that's you know it may not be instagram worthy but that's worthy for me at 87 in that stage of my life and if i'm 22 or 27 and i'm unbreakable you know it harkens back to when bill and i were at the um the last year at the nfl combine um he had a fascial talk right and i spoke a little bit there as well and when i was talking to the snc coaches you know in and amongst our, our actual presentation and lecture uh, they said, Michelle, listen, like w- by the time they get to us, they're bigger, stronger, faster. Anyway, our goal is not to make them bigger, stronger, faster. It's to keep them available. And they said, in fact, the best ability is availability. Mm-hmm. At which point I thought I'm going to steal that saying for sure. Cause that's awesome. Yep. Cause that is what the name of the game is, right? Our best ability is availability. Can I be available to do what is called upon to get the job done? And, um, and so, you know, I think that understanding that in the great context of programming then all of a sudden all of these tools do come alive because they have a place, right? To your point, when people grab the, the Vipers for, the, for Viper Pros for the first time, it's, they do two bicep curls with it and two shoulder presses with it and they put it down. And then you know what, that's fair. I'd probably do the same thing because I'm trying to attach a known, which is exercises to an unknown, which is this rubber tube. And so it, it stands to reason why people would do that. And so when folks do that, they put it down and immediately they walk away and think, well, that's too light. And they're right if linear is what with their outcome or what this tool was you know, designed to service. Uh, but as you know, it's not, right? When we take it off the midline, when we asymmetrically load it, when we try to decelerate it with you know, kind of a unique body posture, uh, that's a real different story. And so you know, simply put, that's what we want to do. We want to help uh, build unbreakable bodies, not by being the only solution but by providing a swath of different inputs, uh, including this idea of loading movement that builds the chassis and the horsepower of a car. Well, I think that's the biggest thing what we're trying to do with athletes. So we're trying to build them and, and to go
0: off a couple points that you made. One, you know, we see a lot of things online that are based upon the elite level athlete. You yeah. know, If you look at Instagram and, and all of the different portals, which is great, I, I love looking at all of it. But again, most of the people from Parisi's, what we're dealing with, is the 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old kid who's never touched the weight before, maybe has done a little speed work, you know, things like that. And what we're trying to do is find the right way to submaximally load them for a different variety of reasons. One, it could be loaded movement patterns. The other thing too is, you know, we, we all understand about velocity-based training now. And it's funny how this is really becoming uh, to the forefront, which I think we've done that for 20-some years, velocity-based training, is putting people under load. One, like you said earlier, to stimulate them to maybe fail right i think failure is a part of the training because it exposes what areas might need need help but the other factor is if we're doing say just good old-fashioned sprint work some of the oldest ways of of loading was overload with a sled or overload with a bungee cord where that load can affect their movement pattern and once that changes their movement pattern to me almost wasting time now some people might look at it as we're trying to create toughness and conditioning hey that might be a piece of it but I think what you're trying to say as well with the Viper Pro is we can load these patterns the way we want to load them. I think that's what I've always struggled with, with sports performances. I want to load people the right way, not just throw a load on them because it's easy to put weights in people's hands, like you said, but to put the right type of load and allow them to go through the right right movement patterns. Um, And we know now this is the big subject. It's, it's affecting not only the muscular system, but really the fascial system. So I want to give you an opportunity to maybe talk a little bit more about, you know, how you kind of got started with the fascial system and how the Viper Pro and, and what we're doing with movement patterns, how is that all starting to kind of come together? Because I've seen it over the last couple of years, but I wanted to hear it from you. Obviously, it's going to sound way
1: better coming from you. Um, yeah, I wouldn't put that much pressure on me. I may not be that good. <laughs> now, um, in 20, 2004, uh, and in full credit goes to Tom Myers, right? So, you know, in his book, Anatomy Trains, it was a way to look at Chains of muscles, longitudinal maps of anatomy, right from the feet all the way to the head. Uh, But implicit within the chains of muscle are the connective elements to it. Uh, And so one of the connecting elements is uh, fascia, which is described as connective tissue. But if you look at the definition of connective tissue, it has two roles. The definition of connective tissue is that it's designed to connect and also to disconnect, which is never really seen. Like fascia is designed to disconnect? Absolutely, because fascial bundles when you dissect and look at, you know, uh, the body for yourself, if we had nothing but connections, there would not be a, uh, you know, a, let's say a semi tendinosis hamstring independent from the adductor Magnus, it would all be connected. And we know that in therapeutic realms or in injury realms, if you've got an adhesion, that is connective tissue becoming too connected. Right, so the idea of sliding and gliding and you know approximating and moving our bodies is fascia doing two things really well: connecting strongly and disconnecting strongly, <laughs> right? And so by virtue of movement, right, uh, and organizing movement, what we are doing is reinforcing the the, the cables, right? The three dimensional fibrous connective tissue that is fascia, fibrous connective tissue. So you know, can we make those struts and cables strong? Uh, but can we also vari- give a variety of different movement tasks such that we can reinforce the disconnection of structure so they can move independently of one another? And so it reinforces those particular patterns to be sure. So back in, you know, 04, learning that perspective and at the same time crashing into this constraint that Simon and I had relative to these farm kids being stronger than the city kids and trying to be what, why, what are they doing? And then looking at it and going, well, they're not really dealing with sub or uh, maximal loads. They're not really dealing with maximal loads much of the day and yet they're stronger. But how are they stronger? Because if you put a, a farm kit in the gym under linear maximal you know, uh, plates on a bar, probably advantage gym kid. So it's not that one is always better than the other. It's that, okay, you know what? Like to your point, there are different inputs. And so can we start to take advantage of those different inputs and what is going on? Because the gym kid is typically bigger, more muscular than their farm counterpart, but that the farm counterpart in odd positions had huge advantage because they were sinewy, they were stable. They were just, you know, otherwise you couldn't move them around. Even their handshake, you shook their hand and they were strong from their fingertips all the way through their body. And they weren't as muscularly developed as the bodybuilder or the strength athlete in the gym in the city. So when you looked at that, what they said, well, what, what tissue are they taking advantage of? And by for sure, muscular, uh, muscular tissue, to be sure. And there's, there's no doubt that the nervous system plays a role in it as well. Uh, but then this omnidirectional load has a huge capacity to be able to remodel in a way that provides shape stability. And it is this shape stability that is your authentic biological you know wetsuit or weightlifting suit, right which is skin all and then down. Uh, and if we can reinforce the robustness of that, automatically force potential or the generation of force, that potential goes up. because you know, um, to grab a, a quote from Paul check like you can't fire a cannon from a canoe. So you can only produce as much force as you can stabilize. And if, if you're, you know, skin and, and your fascial net is, is supportive and it's structurally stable. Uh, and it's, it's packed with collagen that are long and strong and glued down with all the soluble carbohydrate polymers that are in the interstitia and fascia. That recipe is awesome for shape stability body-wide. And it's not a muscular conversation alone. In fact, that conversation is not about muscle at all. And the advantage there is that stability doesn't require any metabolic cost, right? And so we conserve metabolic energy. And that is a great deal for any athlete that has to you know, do something for more than a minute. Uh, and if they have to do something repeated for more than a minute in bouts of work to rest, right, and that's most of sport, uh, then huge advantage to them because it, it decreases the risk of injury, it increases the economy of energy utilization, uh, and it otherwise bulletproofs the chassis and the horsepower of their car. And so it's not all we do but i think see what you said is the recognition of particularly young athletes like if you said hey young athlete let's forget about your horsepower you're going to get to that you know when you get 14 15 16 right now let's get a strong chassis on your car now that doesn't sound too sexy right A, a, a big horsepower that sounds pretty you know appealing but what is truly appealing and should be and ought to be appealing for these young athletes is the more effective and strong the chassis of their, their car, this, this engine that, or this body that they have, uh, the, the less risk of injury and the more horsepower you can put in that car eventually, because when you rev it, it ain't going to break. And that's the advantage that the farm kids had. They were building a, just a really ridiculously strong chassis and everybody on Instagram, everybody in name and lights. You're right. It's about the number. It's about the time it's about, and that's revving the horsepower. And what we're trying to do is, while that's awesome and it's needed, uh, it's there as a function predicated on having a strong chassis of the car. And if we can do that, that person's taken a step towards being unbreakable, or as unbreakable as they possibly can be.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of kids, like you said, listen, they're going to come to the weight room. They want to look at the record board or they want to know how high can I jump on the vertec. And those are great measurables. And I think they're very important. I think we need to show, that's how we show progress. You know, I don't believe in in celebrating success. I, I believe in celebrating progress. You're progressing. And what I think you're saying too, is this is just another piece of getting them to to progress right and in my opinion you could tell me if i'm wrong i think utilizing what you're doing what bill's doing along with some traditional strength training along with our speed training it's just an unbelievable mix and i think that's what we have to look at as as performance coaches how do we give the right dosages of all of these And, and that's what i wanted to kind of follow up with you know when you're training the fascial system especially I'm going to speak more for the younger athlete, the junior high school to high school athlete whose training age is probably zero to three years, if you're lucky. Um, Number one, how much how much of a dosage would you give? And then number two, how long does it take to see results? We typically know with strength and speed, you know, four to six weeks, you'll probably start seeing some changes in numbers, maybe eight weeks, give or take. Yeah. Uh, but I know the faster system is a little bit different, the way it functions. So how long do you think it takes uh, on average? Again, n- nothing's, uh, you know, written in stone. And then also to what is the right dosage? Is it 20% of an hour session, 15%, 50%? Yeah. Just wanted to kind of see what your thoughts were on that.
1: Yeah. Th- those are great questions. Uh, let me jump to the, the, the adaptation time. I mean, obviously we start a series of responses lead to an adaptation. So even if you and I did about this afternoon, Right. We would impose some, some input, some signaling to the body, right? And then, by virtue of that, there'd be a, a, a modulated response in through physiology. And so, right away, that response is uh, happens every time. But to get an adaptation, there needs to be a series of responses over time. Now, uh, you know that four to six weeks is ample to see some strength or performance gains because the nervous system is that quick to synchronize. You know their depolarization, repolarization efforts. Uh, they're able to coordinate themselves on a different level. And so that's usually their early strength gains are attributed to just your nervous system more organized. So I can see that. Then immediately following that within a given number of weeks, you know, that, that kind of six to eight weeks, you're going to start to see a muscular cross-sectional increase change. So that's a pretty good investment, but, you know, I can kind of hang on and see some results. And so that motivates me. The trick with fascia is that it happens, it starts happening right away, but a lot of these are at the microscopic level, right? So you start laying down collagen, you start regulating you know, hyaluronic acid or proteoglycans, right? Which start to build the fabric of the body, right? And that happens right away in the, in the course of the first few weeks, but it's not really realized uh, at, until kind of the six month to two year mark. And that's a pretty broad time frame, but it really depends on a lot of factors. So if I said, you know, just, you know, trust me for, you know, six months to two years, you're going to get there. And they're not seeing a whole lot of necessarily, you know, impactful results. Like you said before, like I put a hundred pounds on the bar, I can lift it. Uh, you know, in, in a month, I put 135 on the bar, I can lift it. A month later, I put and then I can start to see that result. So it, it validates the investment and the diligence to which I am, in, you know, in, including this, um, you know, all of my protocols and kind of the, the spirit and the engagement that I'm putting into this. Uh, it's a lot longer with fascia, And so it takes some, a little bit of a leap of faith to be able to kind of get there, or it takes someone to actually come in and set the expectations up right from the beginning. Like this is the trajectory of long-term athletic development. And when you're in the younger years, you're doing this in the competitive years, you're cycling through and you're doing this life after the field, right? You've won 17 gold medal in the javelins is that bill. Okay. And then you're on the javelin hall of fame. If that's even a thing, uh, and, and your SNC coach is saying, great career. Awesome. You'll probably be handed to a health coach to so that you can maintain some degree of life. Uh, after all the asymmetries that you've produced because of whatever sport you're doing, particularly like a throwing sport, like, uh, like javelin. And so that's the kind of the, and then, you know, you live your retirement years and, you know, you live, you put health span on your lifespan. That would be a great long-term athletic development model, right? And if we look at the phases within those, the chunks of time within them, they accent towards building capacity within different elements, right? Building capacity when it's, it's life after the field is not about bigger, stronger, faster. It's all the pathways that are sustainable. AMPK, PGC1-alpha, PGC4-alpha, all these express the production of mitochondria within the cell. And that's a really good deal at that stage of a person's career. And others as well, but you might index higher towards those types of protocols because of you know the, 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 the after the competitive years of an individual because they still want to live well. Uh, I would say pre-competitive years, it's these types of things. Like, can you build horsepower? Yes. But can you build the chassis of your car? Because it'll increase your ability to be resilient. It'll decrease the risk of injury. And it'll otherwise be able to push your ceiling up. Because you said it perfectly before. Like, we're doing all these things. Why? Because we want to push the ceiling up. What is your potential? We want to push that up. So that when you start to develop the horsepower of your car, you got more room Right, more runway to work within. You got higher ceiling to work within, and what a great way to take advantage of those years developmentally. Knowing that you know, reticulin, uh, collagen, elastin are different in your formative years than when you're 27, 47, 67. Right, and so the the time frame to which we can lay this down is optimized when we're younger. So if we're taking a, a kind of a, a a clinical or a kind of a, an intelligent approach long term as the overall map. That's the way we might look at it.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you look at two, you know, obviously we're right now we're recording this in December. It's, we're still in COVID right. Hopefully soon we're going to get out of it, but we're coming up on nine, 10, 11 months of, of dormant for a lot of kids, you know, in the Northeast, we had a lot of sports canceled. Kids are trying to come back from it. And I can say, I saw a major difference say in September when I really started getting kids back into the gym, working out just number one, how slow they moved and how weak they were. I think that's, that's easy to see. But I did notice some of the things you were talking about a lot of just the collapsing of movements. They couldn't even hold certain movement patterns. They couldn't break and cut. And that's not because they didn't do speed work. They were just so dormant sitting in their houses not like they're outside. You know, playing in the yard or riding their bikes or all of that type of stuff. And I think we forget, like you said, the farm boy. And I just say, play. You know, a lot of kids just don't play anymore. Jumping off a slide or jumping off of a trampoline, like things like that. To me, the fascia system and the muscles being trained constantly. And it's funny. Now we have to, in a way, become specific, like you said, to train. I, I like to use the, the term work, work capacity because if you don't have enough work capacity, you can't handle all of the loads. are being put upon you. So all this great information I'm trying to give you, you just can't absorb it all. Like you said, you're calling it a chassis. It's kind of, to me, all the same thing. If they can't absorb what you're trying to give them, you're just throwing a million exercises at them. So when you started uh, really incorporating the Viper Pro with your clients, I know some of them were hockey players, but we'll we'll take maybe the lower level players. Uh, How much time did you spend, you know, teaching and then pushing them through different movement patterns that maybe they might've failed with. I mean, how, cause that's a difficult thing as a coach. We want them to do the movement pattern perfectly yeah. but trying to recognize, well, it's okay if the, it didn't go perfectly yeah. because they have to adapt and adjust. So how did you you know, work through some of those? Uh, scenarios? Yeah,
1: that's so, yeah, a great question. So in the, in the, uh, what we did is if you looked at our 16 week off season protocols for hockey players, uh, you know, we had anatomical adaptation first, and that's a real good opportunity for us to not necessarily, you know, just default into the strength lifts that we would get into in strength. A- anatomical adaptation it describes exactly what it says, which is we're trying to get the system prepared for increased load. right? So we took about four weeks of that and we said, all right, anatomical adaptation. Now in historical context of anatomical adaptation, the SNC community always took the same type of moves, right? which is great. Uh, linear moves, but then the rep schemes would be different, right. So higher rep schemes, you know, elicits different reactions awesome. What we did though, is we said, well, rep schemes are still going to be that kind of that 15 rep ish range, but instead of linear patterns, let's just organize it like the farm kid would. So for that four weeks, the bulk of the time. So you asked me for a percentage, you know, 75% somewhere in there, we would take omnidirectional submaximal sub-maximal loads, and that would be four weeks of training right there. And so that's anatomical adaptation. And all we would do is just say, let's stress the individual, right, in a a variety of different angulations. So those vectors are going to have a magnitude and a line of force, right? So what's the, so the line of stress is the directionality, the magnitude is going to be how much load. And so for four weeks, we would just take those individuals and we would basically get them to create patterns of stress off the midline asymmetrically loaded in a variety of different three-dimensional ways in order to organize anatomical adaptation, i.e. build the chassis. So that was about 75% of the time. To your idea of success, you're right, we want it to always flavor towards success. So our bubble of function would start right here. Before we did the, the big side lunge with the side reach, it would be a side step with a little bit of a shift to the side. Once they got that in their motor system, motor system's quick. Like, I got it. Now I can matriculate my range of motion out um, to the point where I'm stable. Now, the cool part about that is we're working on mobility at the same time because organizing a three-dimensional approach to sub-maximal load, when we start to go off the midline in these, in these shifting patterns, we're organizing mobility, stability, and positional strength at the same time, like within the same rep right? Our body has to extend to get there. It has to stabilize because it's under load. And if it's not under load, it's, it's going to keep us tight and keep us short. So our range of motion is going to be dictated on, on how much stability we have. And then shifting that mass out there with load over time creates positional strength within that one posture. And so if we organize a variety of different postures for those four weeks, what we're trying to do is to alleviate what you said is they can't decelerate. They can't hold body positions they're collapsing in on themselves and what that in, that does is it decreases the neural drive for what their brain has available because it's not going to f- produce force that it can't stabilize so it downregulates it because your brain's one step ahead of us our, our muscular system or certainly our force production and then number two it decreases the risk of injury and what's interesting is musculoskeletal injuries are not injuries of the muscles, nor are they injuries of the skeleton. They're soft tissue injuries, right? They're fibrous connective tissue injuries for the most part. And yet we describe them in in umbrella terms as a musculoskeletal injury. And while they plague athletes, first responders, you know, uh, office workers, anybody who has repetitive stress, they're plagued by, you know, these musculoskeletal injuries. But more more often than not, uh, they are soft tissue injuries. That we should be training um, re- resilience in the tissues of the fascia, the skin, uh, the interstitia. All of that is a safeguard against the body breaking down, because it works in concert with the nervous system, the muscular system, in order for us to be a viable solution to movement lifelong. And if we can do that, then you know we've got a good, a good you know life giving ourselves the best opportunity to be well through a lifetime. Yeah, I
0: mean, speaking about injuries, it's something I wanted to ask you about, um, obviously injuries an issue, especially the athletes we deal with, because they're playing multiple sports right now is a little different, but normally these kids are playing multiple sports on multiple teams. So, I mean, I know of kids that I've worked with that are at one time around two softball teams and two basketball teams all at the same time. They're playing four different teams, practices, and they want to train with me. We all know I'm I'm trying to obviously uh, deload them as much as I can and give them a break. But, you know, they also want to train. Do you think that, you know, the fashion system, the way we're trying to go about this training and invoke it now into our our training programs, do you think that will help cut down on some of these soft tissue injuries, which are probably the most common for a lot of the overuse uh, athletes out there?
1: Yeah, it, it very well could. And that's a loaded answer because it, it, it depends. I sound like a politician now, right? It depends. I know, it depends, but it's okay. yeah, it it's- depends. But here's what it depends on. I would say it depends on recovery, inter and intra session. Intra session means within the same boat. So if, you, if someone's doing wind sprints, right. And there's not enough neural recovery and, and metabolic recovery. We're going to know, right. Cause you know, you do something for 30 seconds and then they can't repeat it. They need substrate back. They need fuel back. So you give them two minutes, three minutes, whatever. They get T to the half or half their energy back, and then they can kind of you know, manage that, and then they can do it again. So when we think about recovery within a bout, the work-to-rest ratio of intervals is typically on the consideration of metabolic and nervous system uh, considerations. I'm going to add a third one in there is fluid. So fluid needs to recover. And so with fascia, for every 20 to 30 minutes of, of intense exercise, 10-ish, 15 minutes of of recovery allows fluid to return back to the areas that it was pushed away from. Because fluid only goes where it's pushed. It's osmotic pressures, right? So water, blood, lymph, and interstitial fluids are going to be pushed away from high pressure areas. Contracting muscle is a high pressure area. So everything's pushed away and we need time for it to modulate and restore. And so we can do that through active recovery schemes after every 20, 25 to 30 minutes, somewhere in that window, uh, depending on how exhaustive and high intensity the work is, giving that amount of rest of about 10 to 15 minutes, maybe doing some compression, some vibration. Some of these protocols that we know in our space uh, can actually help restore balance of the fluid. So that's intra-session. Inter which means between, you know, I'm playing on two basketball squads and two whatever you say, you you know, I'm a multi-sport, the bane of my existence growing up because I was the chubby kid that never played sport. But, you know, uh, I wish I was one of those people. But I know exactly what you're talking about. They can play all the sports and they go from one practice and they bike to the next practice and, and away they go. Um, that's, you know, how much total volume do I have? That cumulative stress week to week is allostatic load. And I need, we need to manage workloads, right? And so young kids can manage it better if their nutrition Their sleep and their hydration is better. Uh But a lot of kids are playing game, video games till late at night. So now there goes their sleep when they're in front of video games they are not moving. So there goes their, like you said, their exposure to movement, that those lines of stress that we need. And a lot of times when they're playing video games, the choice of food that goes with it is not good. It's pro-inflammatory. So as soon as you have pro-inflammatory foods uh, in order to combat that biology will increase acute uh, inflammation. And if I'm eating bad food over and over again, that acute inflammation becomes repeated, right? And then it becomes chronic inflammation because the acute periods have never stop, right? So now you've got a chronic exposure, C-reactive protein measures go up, which is a systemic marker for inflammation. Under inflammatory mechanisms, inflammatory cytokines go up, um, killer cells begin to deviate, uh, white blood cell count goes up, when white blood cell count goes up, collagenase goes up because it's supposed to eat collagen as a way for tissue remodeling in the acute injured phase of the normal healing cycle, but it doesn't. So you know, you've got freewheeling collagenase as an enzyme that's up over time. And what does that do? Like Pac-Man, it starts eating collagen, and that is deteriorating our chassis. And so we're not laying down more chassis because of lack of movement. And I'm just eating nothing but terrible food, which is now creating an enzyme response that's eating my chassis away. That's a recipe for disaster. And so if it's met with a high volume of, I play all these sports, uh, that's complex. Uh, you know, those are complex things that could deteriorate an athlete. Now add another one, the adolescent female who is experiencing her menstrual cycle for the first time that in those years, Uh, my partner's doing her phd on gender specific training for female and doing her phd thesis on this very thing that is an extra layer of chemistry that is complex but needs to be thought out and discussed openly i have a daughter i want her to be empowered by knowing this as a dad i want to know this i I have two daughters i'm with you there you go so yeah routinely my daughter and i have and she's 10 but we routinely have discussions very openly on her period. when she's get it, what's her strategy going to be? All that. She is so comfortable talking about it because dad's so comfortable talking about it. And we need to understand that when we deal with these formative athletes, they're not just 25 to 45-year-old males, of which the research has always done tests on. Why? Because the, the physiology is you know, it's less undulating, right? It's just uh-huh. it's more consistent day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month. So it's easier to do research on that. But those conclusions don't necessarily, uh, they're not necessarily meaningful for everybody uh, because physiology differs from male to female. And for the transgender community still does because exogenously and endogenously, transgender community are taking exogenous things and their endogenous physiology is still what it is. And so that is an area of research that is still needed to be done because it's inconclusive. There is more research on this, by the way, but it's still inconclusive as to where we should really be putting our focus. The conclusion right now is it's based on endogenous physiology, not what you're putting in your body to, let's say, modify your, uh, your estrogen androgen uh, balance. Um, but you know, all of these things are in this kind of soup called physiology, and we need to understand what that actually means when we program effectively for folks. I think you made a great point before. It's just talking
0: about, um, I'll just kind of summarize, some of the rest periods that you may have to give your athletes in a training session. That's what we do, right? We work with six, eight kids in a training session. We only have an hour. We're trying to get the most bang for our buck, get as many things as we can, and trying to walk that fine line of giving them enough rest time, one for just normal recovery, which we know about, but really letting all the different systems that you're speaking of get the proper recovery. Because in my opinion now, I mean, I've been doing this out for a long time. Those are where some of the injuries are starting to happen because we're not giving them the right rest periods. We're so focused on, we got to do another exercise, got to do another rep, got to, got to, got to create toughness and, and, and challenges and all. And, and again, there's a place for it, but I think, uh, and I coach track and field now, I've been coaching for a while. I'm a head track coach at a high school and I've dealt with, I had a kid last year, just a quick story that, chronic hamstring issues for two years straight i wasn't the coach so i'm not i'm not naming the other coaches but uh they ran him to the ground is really what, what it came down to you had distance coaches treating sprinters like distance kids and they ran and ran and ran i took over i started working with him and he was surprised at how little we did the first couple weeks yeah, we didn't do anything today i said like, well one i want to just get you healthy i wanted to see how you're feeling but now i've been working with him since march And now he's been competing in a couple meets and I'm like, how are your hamstrings? He goes, I haven't felt a thing in months. And I think what I've tried to do is take a lot of what you and Bill have come up with, with the fascial training. And I do think our Preciate training system now looking at it from afar has always addressed a lot of these needs. We just didn't know it did it. You know what I mean? We, had, we knew it worked. We didn't know why it worked. Now we're getting some more validation of why it's working. So when, when you, I brought this up because when you came uh, to get involved with Bill and, and really, you know, I know you're doing that whole fascial research and the fascial academy, which I wanted to get into as well. What did you think about our program and how that was affecting these different uh, physiologies that you're, that you're
1: speaking about? Yeah. And the first thing is, you know, congratulations for having that viewpoint, because a lot of times the tail wags the dog, doesn't it? You know, mm-hmm. I want to do more because sitting idle means I'm wasting my time or whatever perception they have. And it's tough sometimes to be able to kind of push that back and say, wait a second, it's very easy to under recover. It's very easy to underrecover. And you look at the most elite uh, a- a- athletics, they're going to have genetics on their side and all these hosts of other uh, assets on their side. But I think for most of us, it's easy to under recover. Uh, And it seems to be a very binary thing. Either I do nothing in my developmental years or all I do is play 16 sports. And and like you said, the coaches are running me into the ground. And it's like, where's the middle in there? (laughs) Because there's a huge escape of middle in that ground to undulate stress and and recovery. And the idea is, can we stress them not just for stress sake? You said this earlier, not just for stress sake can we stress them to create an input into the body? That's what we want to do. Because all we do is we're stressing it because that is information into the body. That's either mechanical information or chemical information. right? Because those mediators are going to convert into chemical activity. If I go on and I sit too much for too long or I go into outer space, within a day, I start peeing calcium out of my urine. Why? Because it's coming out of my bones. Why lack of stress? So mechanical stress every day re, uh, reinforces the loop of signaling, right? And that's all we're doing. So are we maximizing our exposure to that information coming in, right? Can we maximize the stress? And I don't mean by putting more stress, by by being intentional about how we're stressing the individual and intentional about how we coach it if it's submaximal versus, you know, you know, all out because they're ready for it. But that's the art of who we're dealing with and what we're doing. But can we be very intentional about that in terms of stress as inputs? And then can we be very intentional about recovery? And if we can, that is where gains and that's where super compensation is being made. And so when looking at your programs, you know what, was, what struck me first is that you were thinking about these things. right? It's not just one side of the equation. Like You're coming in for a workout, uh, which would be the industry of fitness and performance to a certain degree. No, you're coming here to get trained, right? And I was talking to someone else the other day and we were talking about training, right? And there's a cool saying out there that we actually are borrowing now. I think it's from the the Marines, but it says, under pressure, you never rise to the occasion, you fall to the level of your training. So if your training is good, you ain't gonna fall that far. If your training is non-existent or or marginal at best, you're gonna fall a lot under pressure because under pressure, you never rise to the occasion. No one ever rises to the occasion. We think we do, we, we, you know, we would like to think we would we, we, we do that, but we never do. Uh, we fall to the level of our training. And so the other per- the, I, I was talking to someone else about someone that they loved and their concern is that that individual is training too much. And I said, uh, okay, that's, that's good, we need to recover. And, and then we were talking about this idea of falling to the level of, of their training. And she said, yeah, but he'll just think that's more training. Right now, I should be falling to the level of training. I should be training more. And I said, no, that's stressing. And there's a difference between training and stressing. Training is the undulation of work and rest. That is a training program, right? Just doing another workout because I need to be badass today uh, is just extra stressing. And extra stress physiologically at a certain point of time is what's called chronic overreaching. So overreaching is being intentional about the stress. That's awesome. And if we overreach, which is stretching a little bit further, right, then our capacity allows us. And then resting, that's when our body super compensates. That's when all the adaptations the positive ad- adaptations occur. So overreaching, so overreach, then rest, then overreach, then rest, then overreach, and wash, rinse, repeat. Chronic overreaching is overtraining. And then there's a cascade of different stress hormones that are expressed, and our physiology is all out of whack at that point. And we're not making any gains at that point, right? Because, you know, the chemical soup that we live in is tilted towards fight or flight stress and cortisol and all these other mediators are running rampant. And it's it's hard to correct once we enter into overtraining.
0: I mean, listen, that's what we deal with every day, right? You know, and, and I think one of the challenges we've always had with our program is we'll get a kid, you know, two or three days a week. Sounds like they're getting rest in between, but they're not, right? They're leaving us and going to basketball practice, going for hitting less and going... know for wrestling whatever it is and again we understand if you don't do that some of these kids are going to be left behind in some of their sports especially the sports that are very highly skilled you know sports like baseball and softball things like that where they need these motors this motor skill training um but definitely the issue of injury i've seen it this is you know i'm 20 some years into training athletes i've seen younger kids now getting severe injuries not only muscle uh, soft tissue but really severe Uh, just chronic injuries that that some of them can't even be diagnosed. They don't even know why they're hurting. Um, So trying to figure out, you know, is that like, take the hamstring injury for for, uh, a minute. I I think in my opinion, this kid's, uh, it wasn't his hamstring. That was the issue. I think the fascial tissue around it was just so destroyed from like, like you were saying, the fact that we rested it and then we, started incorporating this type of training and i did i used the viper with him that was part of our movement prep series and then we transitioned into, into sprint mechanics do you think that is one of the issues of why kids are getting injured
1: even more now because they're not training in that system the way we've discussed yeah it's a, i think it's a multi-pronged thing uh i think it's over it, it's either one of the two they're either over training or it's an all-in-none situation where they're just you know not doing enough and then they're revving their engine too high too quickly, yeah. and then they're not used to it. So it's kind of one of those bookends, right? It's like all we do is play video games and then run it, you know, 100%, or do something at 100% and then do nothing again. Or it's what you're talking about, which is I'm a, playing a variety of different sports and I got to do more to be more. And uh, so it's that. And then it's also just the opportunity of specificity. And I know specificity is looked at as being awesome, and to a certain degree it is, but it's a challenging topic, right? Because the idea of specificity would be that we go in there and we zero in on an outcome or a function. And that's hard when we think about that biologically and on the human scale. Because if we're teaching the hamstring to do something specific, then we would say, well, it's a knee flexor, so let's teach it to flex the knee. But if it's sprint mechanics, the hamstring does a whole host of different things. And it's part of the entire body. So it's really the body thing. And the part of it that is getting injured is the hamstring. Is it you know the fascia surrounding it could very well be. Uh, is it that we're not teaching it to move quickly could very well be because gym speed is different than life speed, oh. um, and so we want to kind of say all right, can we actually take consideration of both? Um, and then you know is our nervous system coordinated? Yeah, is are we teaching that um, hamstring to be triplanar? Because if it's if we just see the hamstrings as being a sagittal muscle we're not really looking at the distal attachments because the distal attachments blend into the knee capsule and the peasant serene which is in the kind of the medial aspect and then the lateral capsule and the biceps femoris it splits and becomes and it's anterior to the axis of rotation so it's like you know taking reins on a horse's head if you pull the reins towards the right the horse's head turns to the right that's the hamstring because they come down and they wrap around the side of the knee in front of the axis of rotation so they actually have a huge capacity to control transverse plane, as well as the terminal ends of sagittal motion and gait, right? And that's the function of the hamstrings. So if I can teach it all of that, even in the frontal plane, as it decelerates frontal plane motion, because that's what it does, right? No muscle creates frontal plane motion at the knee, right? If I got your limb to lift off the ground, and said, all right, hey, Steve, move your knee in the frontal plane. You'd be like, can't do it. But the knee can move in the frontal plane. It just ground reaction force and super incumbent weight over top of it. So we still need muscles to decelerate the frontal plane. They just can't produce frontal plane motion. So to say that we don't have frontal plane motion in the knee because no muscle can produce it is an erroneous statement, right? We just need to control it. So we need to react to it because ground reaction force is going to take that knee until valgusing stress for sure, right? And so are we building that capability in? And if we are and we do that with proper stress and rest, you've got your scenario, which is I haven't helped felt my hamstring in, in two months, it feels great. Great. You know, that's then go do what you want to do for as long as you want to do it. And, uh, you know, that's effective coaching. So uh, that perspective, it, it sounds like it's starting to tilt because I've had many conversations in this space and you know, that this narrative is starting to really take hold and it's not a binary narrative. It's not like I'm teaching the hamstrings to be a multi, uh, three-dimensional muscle doesn't mean that I still can't do sagittal exercises of a deadlift with it. It just means I'm considering both of those things in order to accelerate my abilities or my unbreakable qualities uh, within my body so I can do what I want to do for as long as I want to do it. Well, I think that's the key takeaway,
0: right, is that everything has has its place. That's what I always try to explain when I do a lot of the education for Parisi's you know, it's not just one thing. We're not lifting, just lifting heavy weights. We're not just running fast. We're not just doing technical work. We're not just doing mobility. It's all the right dosages. And we're trying to do our best from a corporate standpoint to, uh, you know, disseminate that down to everyone to get them to understand it, but it's never perfect. Right. So if you have five kids in a group, I could write the greatest program in the world. You know, it, it may not work for all five it might work for two. Um, but I think recognizing what is occurring and seeing uh, the leaks in the joints, if, if they're collapsing, or if they can't create that stiffness that we're trying to work on. I think having an option to, you know, call an audible, so to speak, mm-hmm. and say, okay, we're going to do, we're, we're, we're 30 minutes in. You guys just aren't, for example, aren't stiffening out on your leg on, on the top speed mechanics. Maybe take 10 minutes, grab the Viper, and start doing some post positions, a marches, things like that to reinvigorate the body to understand it okay, put the Vipers back down and then go back to uh, your sprint mechanics. That's what I have done. I don't know if it's, if you think it works, I've seen it work, but I could be totally wrong. I wanted to see what your opinion was of kind of layering it in uh, as part of our training program.
1: Yeah, well, we, there's different ways to do it. There is an art to program design to be sure. And so to kind of keep it simple for the purpose of this first discussion, um, yeah, like you, you, we can do, you know, We can do some post activation elements, which are more complex, but if we keep it simple, like what we've done is we've done some breathing techniques. So let's say a person's sprint mechanics are, and we're thinking it doesn't look quite right. That hamstring looks like it may be contributing a lot And it could be based on the fact that the lat and opposite glute are not doing enough uh, and they're more proximal. So what we might do as a response to that, for instance, is we might say, all right, Hey athlete, come here we might pre-position a load. In this case, we've got our, our Viper Pro, but you know it's a, it's a mass, right? So we pre-position a mass, it's off the midline. So it's not that the body's now not pre-positioned, it could be very symmetrical, but the load and the line of force is an, at, an odd angu, at an odd angulation. And once we go through that, what we would do is do either forced breathing or percussive breathing techniques. So if I looked at forced breathing and I looked at forced exhalation, It's basically what it suggests, which is I'm breathing breathing out all of my air, and when I think I'm done, you know, there's one more candle on that cake and I got to get it out. So I'm trying to breathe everything out of my lungs within, you know, reason. And that last little bit of really forcing everything out is going to create hoop tension. It's going to spare the diaphragm because the diaphragm, the respiratory diaphragm is not used during exhalation. It's the pelvic basin, that diaphragm, the pelvic diaphragm that is used along with all four layers of the abdominal wall, along with the paraspinal musculature, along with the intercostals. So you spare the respiratory diaphragm. And what that does is create more hoop tension around the the stomach and what anchors into hoop tension, and opposite lat. And once they can do that, it actually takes away the uh, the requirement of the hamstring to have to contract as a stabilizer because you're getting proximal stability by virtue of all four layers of the abdominal wall all of the parascapular or the paraspinal muscles all of your uh, intercostal muscles and your gluten opposite lat that is the job of actually anchoring that system down and then radiating proximal to distal stability and now what you find is your your, your hamstrings can actually relax and then contract quick and maximal, and then relax. Why? Because they're not used just to stabilize. Why? Because that's done at the proximal, proximal elements of the body. What happens? Speed goes up. Why? Because things are able to turn off because lack of or a um, decreased amount of threat. When we're under threat, instability, anything else, uh, muscles are on too long. And on is slow, and off is quick. Yeah. So what we want to do is teach the body to be stable in a variety of different postures so that the nervous system will never say, I don't feel quite right in this posture. Let me guard everything as a p- protection mechanism because that's a higher priority to me than trying to execute the play. But if we can create a skin, a connective tissue fascia, a joint, a nervous system, and a muscular system that is has the capacity to be like a farm kid, right? Any position, I'm never really out of position because I've trained all these odd positions in life, we avoid what we call critical delay. And a critical delay is, is a term that is used in the s community for that point of guarding, right? When the body has to just capture itself and protect itself for an instant before it does something. That moment, that critical delay is the difference between being in the play or not, or the difference between my ACL or my hamstring going or not. And what we want to do is avoid critical delays. And then we do that by virtue of these techniques. So if we had a Viper Pro, you know, let's say we had an odd position, so it's asymmetrically off the midline, we do some forced exhalation, right, get everything going at the central aspect of my body, Uh, then what we can do is it's, that's proximal to distal stability, and everything can go on and off quick now, and that is speed and effectiveness of motion, and that's only one example of many, but that's the way that you might do it in between certain drills in order to mitigate... Uh, the risk of injury, but also maximize performance. Yeah. I mean, I think
0: that's, that's really what we deal with every day. Um, and understanding breathing techniques. And it's funny, I had, a, you know, the podcast with Eric Cressy about a month ago and we talked about breathing again. It's something that we're, we're starting to dip our toes in the water a little bit more with, um, it's a little more challenging with younger kids to teach breathing techniques, right? It's, it's not easy, um, sure. but we're, we're starting. And it's definitely something I know you've talked about, I've watched some of your videos. And I think uh, probably in, in 2021 is gonna be one of our uh, uh, big projects we wanna try to figure out. Is it, Cause we know it's important, we understand it. I, think, I definitely think I have a decent understanding of it, but how do we, again, disseminate that down to a 14 year old, uh, you know, like I have a 14 year old freshman. Like, I don't know if she's gonna fully get all of that right of way. Yeah. I've been trying to teach it a little bit as, it, you know, unfortunately, like Bill, I'm sure your kid too, is there are test dummies once in a while when it comes to some of these different uh, training uh, yeah. techniques. But I do definitely think That's breathing and, and like you said, recovery is, is, is an important piece as well um, to work with athletes. And, and there's so much stuff. I mean, again, you know, you know, we've been on the call almost an hour already, and I'm sure we'll talk another five hours. And I think there's definitely going to be a part two to this as well. But uh just to kind of wrap up, number one, I want to thank you for, for your time. And again, we're definitely gonna do a part two, but how can people uh follow you, hit you up if you want to kind of announce all your different handles and websites yeah. and, and things like that?
1: Yeah, for those that are more interested in this, um, you can go to instituteemotion.com, so instituteemotion.com, uh or viper.com, vipr.com, or just follow us uh at viperpro on Instagram or Facebook. And institute a motion on Instagram or Facebook. Those are probably the easiest ways to get in touch. Um, a big shout out of thanks to you and, and the Parisi team is that you know over the last what eighteen months ish, you know our worlds are colliding more and more, and you know we're big collaborators uh, to begin with, and it's been a real joy to experience yourself, Bill, and the team uh in a very collaborative way and so i know that the projects that you guys are doing the books that he's engaged in we've had a lot of discussion so some of that logic um, is imbued into you know it's the results of these discussions that the logic imbues itself into the books and everything else and so you know there it'll be reflected there but you know i think all of us we're excited about where this is going we're excited about the narrative the only thing that i would say is you know if the discourse is substantive and respectful you know, arrows in the back and scrutinizing and, and challenging is a good thing. You know, don't take it at face value. That's a, that's a, that's a good thing. Uh, If it's a disrespectful tone of bravado and I'm trying to put the other person down to elevate myself, that's not sharing best practices and that's not really necessarily getting anywhere. And so it's been an absolute delight to be, you know, engaged with folks like yourselves that have a true passion and, and, and they're, you know, you guys are technicians in your craft and you know wanting to be better is an exchange of information all around and so you know it's um i'm just wonderfully thankful and and um um, appreciative of you guys well thank you and and feelings mutual and
0: I think you can see it, you know, we're all on the same page. We just want to make kids better. I think that's why I do this for a living. I just want to help kids. And it's not about myself or I know you're, you're, you're very humble as well. And it's not about us promoting and our branding. Although we know we have to do that from a business and a marketing standpoint. I think we yeah. understand that piece of it. But I think what we're trying to do, we're really trying to change our program in a good way. And it changed probably the wrong way. We're trying to evolve our program. The right way, and always make it better. And, and and to Bill's credit, the one thing he's always done is sought out the best people in areas that maybe we don't know enough about. This is definitely an area that none of us knew enough about, and he took obviously the bull by the horns and is crushing it. And and what you guys are all doing together, and I'm blown away. You know, I didn't understand it a couple of years ago when he started talking about. It. I'm like, what are you talking about? You're gonna write a book on fashion? There's enough information on that. <laughs> um, you know, and and again, playfully, but I, then. Two seconds later, I'm like, "Wait, this is Bill." I mean, I know it's gonna, it's gonna come into something great, and it has. And our program now is changing not only because of that, but because of all the ventures that we're all collaborating on. And the, the beneficiary is going to be the kids, and I think that's the most okay. important thing. It's really about getting those kids better. And at the end of the day, you know, we'll all make a living and, and hopefully come visit in San Diego sometime. I'd love to we'll go. And see the palm trees out there instead of snow we'll, out in uh, we'll front see- you on. I don't and, know. So, surf. I'm gonna have to do some uh, training before I do some surfing. I tell you what. I'm not a good
1: surfer, but uh, I I know how to coach, and so I'll give you a success map. Right. right that sounds great. Only a few coaching things to concentrate on, and then the rest is just put a smile on your face, have some fun. But, not listen, Steve. We would love to have you. You know, when things normalize uh, out here, and and uh, just looking forward to more collaboration and and uh, more discussion. So, really appreciate you guys, and thanks for your time today. Thank you
0: so much. You know, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, all of that great stuff. Enjoy time with the family. Um, You know, uh, hopefully everybody gets a lot out of this call. Please go back and listen to it. I mean, I can't wait to listen to this again. There was so much information he was saying. I was taking notes because I couldn't, I couldn't process it all all at once. But uh, this is just great for us and our network. And again, thank you for your time and uh, we'll be in touch soon.